I want to begin this morning sharing an extended quote from a man named Langston Hughes. Those of you that are younger and are not students of good literature, you probably have no idea who Hughes is. Uh, Americans actually celebrated or uh, observed the 50th anniversary of his passing this past week, so this quote's kind of timely. Those of you that are familiar with Hughes, you know he was an influential African-American leader of culture in a time when it was difficult to be identified as such. He published poetry, drama, children's stories, short stories, essays, political pieces, his autobiography, libretti for operas, whatever those are. The list goes on and on. And those of you who know about Hughes, who are familiar with him, you know he neither embraced atheism nor Christianity. While he wrote about each of these worldviews, he did not uphold either one. Hughes was a bit of a cynic, pushing against the ways in which religion of various kinds could exploit individuals. At one point, Hughes describes a false conversion to the Christian faith. Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. So he got up and was saved. Then I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and songs swirled all around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans and voices, and I kept waiting serenely for Jesus. Waiting. Waiting. But he didn't come. I wanted to see him, but nothing happened to me. Nothing. I wanted something to happen to me, but nothing happened. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or for lying in the, temp- in the temple. So I decided that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie to and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up. Suddenly the whole room broke into a sea of shouting as they saw me rise. Waves of rejoicing swept the place. Women leaped in the air. Hughes is describing a moment of false worship. A brief period of time where he pretended to play the part of a churchgoer while his heart was far from God. And, and while he doesn't blame the congregation, he certainly notes they cared more about a man embracing a fraudulent faith than meeting him in the midst of his questions, his doubts, and his feelings of being alone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Gardner, and I serve as one of the pastors here. The past several weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. As we've worked our way through this book, we've learned from a teacher who is demonstrating that many of the things we tend to pursue in life to find life, meaning, and purpose, apart from God, they are foolish. The pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of pleasure, In and of itself, the teacher tells us it is meaningless. It is like chasing after smoke or chasing after the wind. 
Now, to be clear, the, the teacher is not telling us to not pursue wealth or pleasure or knowledge, but there is a wise way to pursue these things, and there is a foolish way to pursue these things. This morning, we come to a point where the teacher engages the topic of worship, how we relate to God. When God's people worship, there is a, a way that people worship that is foolish. It is vanity. It is like chasing after the wind. And what we'll find, similar to the situation in Langston Hughes' story, foolish worship, it tends to embrace an appearance of worship. It cares about the activity of worship, rather than seeking and embracing and anticipating the object of worship, God himself. Now, before we go any further, I, I need to provide a bit of a preface. Our task this morning is to critique how we worship, how we relate to God, how we may embrace foolish worship in all sorts of ways, and how we gather on Sunday mornings, or gather with gospel communities, or how we enter into personal devotion. Let me be honest, this is a very personal thing. It can be offensive to critique how one worships. That's between me and God. Don't judge me for how I worship. I want to push against that defense this morning, because this is where Ecclesiastes takes God's people, to be open to the possibility that I worship in foolish ways. The reality, false worship, foolish worship, it infects many of us. We care more about pretending to worship, or the activity of worship, or the appearance of worship. And when we do this, we abandon a proper perspective of who we are in relation to a living God. So here's our task this morning, to think through how we worship. We're going to work our way through this passage, and we're going to identify three marks of foolish worship. Let's begin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to him, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Mark number one of foolish worship, shallow sacrifice. There's a way that many of us engage in a ritual of worship, or a ritual of sacrifice, or a ritual of serving others, our bodies are present, but those bodies are disconnected from mind and heart. We certainly regularly engage in the activities God teaches us to do. Read his word, serve others, gather with God's people, pray with God's people, sing with God's people. We engage in the right activities, and we know we engage in the right activities. But our hearts, they are far from God and we do not worship authentically. Theologians sometimes refer to such a disposition as dead orthodoxy. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describe individuals with such a disposition. They go to God's house, not with the idea of meeting with God, not with the idea of waiting upon him. It never crosses their minds or enters into their hearts that something may happen in a service. 
No, we always do this on a Sunday morning. It is our custom. It is our habit. It is a right thing to do. But the idea that God may suddenly visit his people and descend upon them, the whole thrill of being in the presence of God and sensing his nearness and his power never even enters their imaginations. Do we go to God's house expecting something to happen? Or do we just go to listen to a sermon and to sing our hymns and to meet with one another? How often does this vital idea enter into our minds that we are in the presence of the living God, that the Holy Spirit is in the church, that we may feel the touch of his power? How much do we think in terms of coming together to meet with God and to worship him and to stand before him and to listen to him? Is there not this appalling danger that we are just content because we have correct beliefs? or for that matter, correct activity. Many of us engage in the ritual of worship, but we do not actually worship. We have forgotten and we have abandoned a proper perspective of ourselves in relation to the Lord. As such, our activity lacks depth. It lacks seriousness. We are flippant and we are vain. Well, let me say, the teacher's remedy, it's not to avoid going to church altogether or to avoid participating in elements of a religious gathering. Rather, the teacher's remedy is to guard your steps when you go to the house of God, to listen to God, to recapture a proper perspective. The reality that you and others may participate in ritualistic worship it does not excuse you from gathering with God's people. Nor does it excuse you from participating in elements of Sunday morning worship that you may not feel like participating in. Like communion, or corporate confession of sin, or singing. Guard your steps. Engage your heart, however sinful it may be. Let me also say, it is not that many of us consciously uphold this value of foolish worship or of desiring to appear to worship. The movement from authentic sacrifice, authentic worship, to shallow sacrifice, it is subtle. More than anything, we forget who we are in relation to the living God. When we arrive on Sunday, we forget that we are sinners desperately in need of the grace he has poured out on us. I've been reading a book recently called Coming Clean. And in this book, author Seth Haynes, he shares his personal story of moving from foolish faith, an unawakened faith, to a more authentic, awakened disposition. Listen to a, a few quotes. I play worship music over the house speakers and feign that music is salve to the soul. The worship is much less about personal devotion. It is a cover-up. Over the last year and a half, I have been searching for God while pretending to have it all together. I've been working in illusions, celebrating when I should have been in repentance. Now here I am, a lay worship leader, a faith writer, an editor of a website titled Deeper Church. How much more religious could that sound? 
and I've been playing my own games with devotion. Ah, what a false face. As Seth looks back, he recognizes he was involved in all sorts of spiritual activity, writing, reading, leading the congregation in singing, but he lacked proper perspective. This is the heart of foolish worship and shallow sacrifice, a body that is engaged in religious ritualistic practice, but a mind, a soul, a heart, they are disengaged. Does this sometimes describe you? Whether or not you're the individual who leads a gospel community or puts the meals together for a gospel community or who talks the most during your gospel community or who utters the most scripture when praying or who raises your hand every week during worship, it very much could. Like Seth, we can be active and abandon a proper perspective of who we are in relation to the Lord. And we may not even be aware this is our reality. The teacher says they do not know what they are doing is evil. They are foolish to the point that they are not even aware their sacrifices are evil. How they are worshiping, it is an offense to God. This brings us to Mark number two. Mark number two of foolish worship, shallow self-awareness. If proper worship is bore out of a heart in touch with how broken it is, how much it needs and depends on the Lord, and how blessed one is by God, foolish worship lacks awareness of this reality. Individuals are so disconnected from who they are in relation to a living God because they have shallow self-awareness, and they are robbed of authentic worship. I recently heard a quote along these lines attributed to William Shakespeare. The prison with the most power in your life is the prison you don't know you're in. We all struggle with doubts. We engage in habitual patterns of self-protection and self-reliance or codependence and anxiousness. There are areas of unbelief that pervade our daily life. The danger to these everyday realities is that we become numb to them. We fail to engage the living God with them. We become numb to our pain and our questions and our anger and our fears. We become numb to the ways we need to be conformed more into the image of Christ. And we, when we become numb, we lose self-awareness and it creates barriers in our relationship with others and it robs us of proper worship of God. A couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of the dangers of a lack of self-awareness. I was sitting around with a few men in our church as we progressed through a book study, and during this particular week, we were discussing this topic of self-righteousness. The truth is, God has destroyed much of the self-righteousness that has existed in my heart over the last 15, 20 years, but it's still there. As a result... There are things I am blind to. So we're sitting there, we're, we're drinking our coffee, guys are sharing how they're self-righteous, and I'm failing to see how I'm self-righteous. And, and so in this study, the question is raised, who do you struggle to love? It's probably an indication of where you're experiencing self-righteousness. If there are people you struggle to love, you might be self-righteous in that area. So the light bulb goes off. I say to the men, you know what? I'm a really humble guy. In fact, I don't know anyone who's more humble than myself. I look around, I see people who are proud and arrogant. 
they should be more like me. And when they're not, they certainly annoy me because I'm so humble. I realized I had become proud in my humility and had become numb to how this was destroying my relationship with others and with God. I had been unable to love individuals who struggle with pride and arrogance and my worship of Jesus. It was anemic because I was becoming filled with worship of of self. Shallow self-awareness, foolish worship will do this. We will be more enamored with worship of self We will struggle to love others, and we will be less caught up in worship of Jesus Christ. Why is our self-awareness so shallow? Why do we become numb to areas of struggle? We'll get more to this in a minute, but what we'll see is that an aspect of foolish worship, it's busyness. The teacher will identify we are hasty. We are rash. Earlier, he mentioned, we do not take the time to listen. We do not cautiously guard our steps. We are too busy to recognize and address areas of struggle. We drown our fears and doubts in areas of unbelief with activity. And we don't take time to pause and reflect and experience what is taking place in the season God has us in. To illustrate my point, Let's, let's talk about smartphones for a minute, right? Many of us wake up with our smartphone. We go to bed with our smartphone. We encounter a problem, we, we consult our smartphone. We need directions, we use our smartphone. We feel lonely, we pull out our smartphone. I don't often engage comedians, But Louis C.K. is a comedian whose commentary on how we busy ourselves with smartphones, how it's drowning us, it's like it's right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me read you a slightly modified, extended quote. (laughs) Modified is a key word. Of course, understanding I'm not a stand-up comedian, and the setting for our gathering is not a comedy club. Oh, no, here it comes. That feeling, I'm alone. You know, you know what I'm talking about. It starts to visit on you. You feel alone, like, like life is meaningless. This sadness, life is tremendously sad. And so you're driving and you're going, ah! This is why we text and drive, why, we will, why we're willing to put other people's lives at risk. People are willing to do this because they don't want to be alone for a second. And so I was driving in my car alone when a song came on and I started getting really sad. I had to get out the phone and I had to write hi to like 50 people. I started to get that sad feeling, started to reach for my phone so I could feel better. And I said, don't. Just be sad. Let the sadness come. Don't stand in the way of it. Let the sadness hit you like a truck. Let it come. And I pulled over and I started to cry so much. Now people are laughing at him as he's sharing these comments. He's striking a nerve and it makes us uncomfortable, so we laugh. We forget how broken we are. We fail to pause and reflect because we are too busy. Parents busy with youth sports and youth activities. A young professional busy with advancing her or his career. 
social individuals seeking out social situations to satisfy social cravings. The physically fit, weightlifting, dieting, crossfitting, yoga-ing, skipping church gatherings to run half marathons. <laughs> I, I skipped church last week to run a half marathon. The theologically-minded one looking for opportunities to read and learn, listening to podcast after podcast, reading book after book. The spiritual individual going on missions trips, participating in community groups, engaging in Bible reading groups or prayer groups, reading article after article shared on a Facebook feed. None of these activities is, is sinful in and of itself, but the constant activity, it is destroying our heart and our soul and ultimately is robbing us of worship of Jesus Christ. Before leaving this topic of busyness, one more. On the flip side, rather than failing to recognize how broken we are, some of you struggle to know how blessed you are. How God has given you a new identity. You fail to know who you are in Christ because you're too busy with self-hate. You read scripture to th or you think of reading scripture and you are filled with thoughts of failure and weakness. When confronted with evidence of sin, rather than rejoice at the forgiveness you've been given in Christ, condemnation defines you. Others labor to preach the gospel to you, to encourage you, but you can't receive it because you're too busy engaging in negative self-talk that eliminates your ability to receive and rejoice in the truth that God made you and he saved you. The prison with the most power is the one you don't know you are in. For they, don't, for they do not know what they are doing is evil. I want to ask you, church, in what areas of your life do you lack self-awareness? Of course, we don't know the answer to this question. We're too numb and too busy to know the answer to this question. So perhaps a better question. How will you cultivate patterns to be awoken to areas of persistent brokenness, areas, of, areas you struggle with doubts and have lingering questions. How will you put off being busy and rash and hasty? In what ways will you embrace rhythms where you take time to listen to God, to better understand who you are in relation to Him? We have an anemic awareness of self, and this lack of self-awareness it robs us of proper worship. Let's keep reading and get to Mark number 3. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 7. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your words be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity but God is the one you must fear. The teacher emphasizes voice, words, mouth, what we say. 
So the teacher is identifying the one engaged in foolish worship. He certainly sounds very spiritual. He he sounds very spiritual because he prays with many words, and he likes to hear his voice and share his knowledge. He is busy speaking, and he is slow to listen. And he sounds very spiritual because he often talks about God's authority in his life. He likes to talk about how God has spoken to him in dreams or other abnormal spiritual experiences. And because he's had these abnormal spiritual experiences, he is free to justify particular decisions and particular theological positions. He, give, he gives much lip service talking about God's authority. And he sounds very spiritual because he makes spiritual vows. He commits to sacrifice for others. He commits to sacrifice to God. Yet when it gets hard to fulfill those vows, he is great at finding excuses to avoid commitment. Constant chatter. Falsely claiming God's authority. Verbally expressing half-hearted commitments. Addressing each of these would be a great sermon in and of itself. But here's the point. Like Job's counselors, like the congregation surrounding Langston Hughes, the one who sounds spiritual often misses the heart because his speech is shallow. Mark number three of foolish worship is shallow speech. Now, before I dive into this point too far, please note, this is not a universal critique. This is not a a universal, hey, you you need to not talk during gospel community. You need to listen more. Some of you, you need to process out loud more. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that need you to, to proclaim the gospel to them. They need to hear your encouragement. They need to to hear you challenge them. They need to hear you love and care for them. And so this is not a universal proclamation, don't talk. The reality is, though, many of us like to talk. We like to talk about our knowledge of the doctrines of God, God's sovereignty, total depravity, how one is saved, our view on the end times. We like to talk about being missional, We like to talk about how God made it clear that we should make a particular decision, a decision to move or a decision to take a different job or a decision to switch churches. I once had a a non-Christian friend remark that Christians are great at claiming God's authority in their lives, especially when it's to justify decisions they want to make. And we like to say, I will. I mean, it's the right thing to do. It feels so good for many of us to say, I will pray for you. I will love you. I will care for you. I will do life with you. I will live missionally. I will live a life serving people who are on the margins. We like to say, I will. It feels good. But when it gets hard, when we feel abandoned, when we want to bail on community, when we, when we feel like it gets hard to live missionally, like it might cost us something, we bail. Or, or when other people wound us, this idea of doing life together, we certainly back off. Why do we not take the time to listen? 
Why do we not choose our words carefully? Why is our speech shallow? Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute when they are in the company of others that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life, and in the end there is nothing left but spiritual chatter and clerical condescension arrayed in pious words. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. People don't find a listening ear among Christians. Nothing but prattle in the presence of God, spiritual chatter and clerical condescension arrayed in pious words. Why? Why do we like to talk so much? Why do we not listen? We neglect a proper understanding of who we are in relation to a living God. Bonhoeffer says, the person believes his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet. He's too important to take time to listen. He doesn't believe he needs to guard his steps. He doesn't believe he needs to slow down. He has forgotten he needs to listen. And he has forgotten a proper understanding of who he is in relation to a living God. There's a parable in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke that compares the sacrifice of a Pharisee, the religious one, with the sacrifice of a tax collector. The sacrifice of the tax collector is exalted, while the sacrifice of the Pharisee, his sacrifice separates him from God. The Pharisee, his speech reflects his work, how he doesn't sin like the tax collector. The tax collector, his speech, it's simple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke differentiates the two, saying, some, the religious, trusted in themselves, their works, and they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. The tax collector, on the other hand, he humbled himself. He remembered who he was before God. He knew in the face of God he had no works to cling to. Consistently, the Bible compares the sacrifice of the proud or the fool with the sacrifice of the humble, the one who is aware of his brokenness in relation to the Lord. Fools fail to reflect on and express the depravity within their own heart. They may do this out loud or they may just do this internally. They certainly declare that depravity, but they're unable to declare the depravity within. And this reality, failing to reflect on and voice the depravity within, it leaves us with a sense of self-exaltation. We trust in our works, and we speak in ways that exalt self, and we disconnect ourselves from proper reliance on the Lord. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes is driving at, an ongoing proper perspective of who we are in relation to the Lord. Guard your steps. Listen to God. Fear the Lord. 
We need to have this ongoing perspective of who we are in relation to the Lord in order to experience authentic worship. You will hear this theme over and over again in this book. God is the one you must fear. God is in heaven and you are on earth. He is the one who is in control. He is the one you are to look to. He is the one you are to revere. He is the one you are to trust in. It's not your sacrifices to God that matter. It's not your speech that matters. This was true for the teacher's primary audience, and it's perhaps more true of us today. Because when we look to our Lord Jesus Christ, we see his sacrifice. We know it is the one sacrifice necessary to justify us from now until eternity. There is nothing we can bring to God, nothing we need to bring to God that will justify our presence before him. He, his sacrifice, has made us right with him. And when we look to Jesus, we hear his speech. And we know the only words that matter are his words. When he cried, it is finished, that was all that needed to be said. There is nothing more I need to say to justify my standing before him. Jesus said it all. Let's not say anything more. Let's pray.